Father, we thank you for the most wonderful situation of you bringing so many people to this fellowship. That we have an opportunity to provide another service. We thank you for every life because they come from hurts. They come from guilt. Uh, they come from dread. Some come from joy and celebration, new marriages. Lord, some come from hurting marriages. But thank you for the privilege of loving them, learning how to love you with them. We beg you that we would be great mentors, great friends, great students, learning how to care. Father, we've never been more vulnerable. We are a beautiful flower growing here in the center of the city, but a vulnerable flower. We need the Holy Spirit to keep us alive, keep us vibrant. We have no strength except that which you give. We have no purpose except that which you ordain. So, Lord, here we are asking to be useful from here to the Middle East to the Far East. From massive cities to small cities, from villages to neighborhoods, may all come to Christ, experience his love and forgiveness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Before I uh, begin teaching, I do want to tell you that if you're not receiving uh, notifications from the Hope Point website, you can if you just go to the, to the app store and, and download the, the Hope Point app. Um, I think this would, would be a good week for me to send out a few prayers like we used to at 320 because I was preaching on that. I think, I think for the next week at least I'll send out little prayers that we can collectively be praying in unity. And I think I'll send those out at 845. Again, shameless self-promotion of, of the early service. But download the app and then select uh, you want to receive notifications. And we'll send you 140 character text every morning to help you pray. On August 28, um, August 28, 1963, more than 2,000 buses, 21 trains, and 10 chartered airliners converged on Washington, D.C., bringing 250,000 people to participate in a march that would begin at the Washington Monument and conclude at the Lincoln Memorial. A lot of musicians there that day, Ruby Dee, Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, Lena Horne, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Many people addressed the crowd that day. The last to speak was a pastor from, a 34-year-old pastor from Atlanta, Georgia, Martin Luther King. He gave his address standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial where 100 years earlier was the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. The closing speech was carried on all the networks and it helped pave the way for the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Anybody other than Martin Luther King Jr. is not comfortable quoting that speech at all because it should come only from the lips of one man. But I do just want to quote these words, not on PowerPoint, just so you can hear them again because they do belong to one of America's greatest speeches. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners 
we'll be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I love King's speech because it belongs to the heart of God. Jesus Christ came to earth to bring unity between God and man and between man and man. Martin Luther King did nothing more than to declare the will of God, and that is that peace is possible between men and women on this earth. How do we know that? Because this is the declaration of possibly the greatest work that Paul ever wrote, the book of Ephesians. And in that greatest of all his works, maybe his greatest room in that giant building of Ephesians would be Ephesians chapter 2. A definition of the church which centers on global racial socioeconomic unity. Ephesians 2.14 For he is himself, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. You know why Paul loved the church so much? Because he knew that it was the one and only place on earth where there would be the possibility that all socioeconomic, racial, and barriers would be, could be, should be broken down. For Christ himself is our peace and he's destroyed the wall of hostility. What I want to do to launch the message today is to answer three questions. And that is, what is hostility? Where does it come from? And is there any hope for <clears throat> ending it? So first, what is hostility? <clears throat> well, basically on a horizontal level, it is a fractured relationship. In the context of Ephesians 2, it's a fractured relationship based on race. A person who's hostile racially would say, I simply don't like you because you are not like me. You're not my race. You're not my rank in society. You're not my nationality. You do not speak my language. Hostility says, I don't like you because you're different than me, and my different is better than your different. Now, the two groups that existed in the first century when Paul wrote this masterpiece of Ephesians were Jews and Gentiles. And I told you last week that no racial clash could ever um, surpass the tension, the hatred that existed between Jews and non-Jews or Gentiles. Jews used to say that God invented Gentiles in order to have new fire to burn in hell. There was a lot of hatred there. Number two, where does hostility come from? Well, it comes from the fact when people get separated from God, 
they get separated from one another. We see this in Genesis chapter 2. Adam and Eve, they disobey God, and all of a sudden they're separated vertically from the Lord. Then their marriage, Genesis chapter 3, they have tension in their marriage because of their separation from God. Then in Genesis chapter 4, their, one of their sons, Cain, murders his brother Abel. All of it, separation from God, leading to separation from man. Third question, is there any hope for ending hostility? And that answer is yes, but only one hope, Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14, he himself is our peace. I love how verse 14 begins. Peace is not found in a program. It's found in a person. Peace is found Not in education, not in government. Peace is found in a person, Jesus Christ. But our world refuses to to surrender, tell God we need that man. So our world trusts in its own wisdom and its own power, its own finesse, and its own agenda and refuses to say that we need Jesus to bring peace. On May 9th through 11th, for those three days in Dallas, Texas, hundreds and thousands of people flocked to see an upright Steinway piano made of chestnut wood. The piano was valued at somewhere between eight and 12 million dollars. It's thought to be the most expensive piece of pop memorabilia in existence. The piano was the one that John Lennon used to write the song Imagine. It was the best-selling solo song of his career. He wrote it in May of 1971 and recorded it in New York City one take um, two months later. The song was a rallying cry for world peace. It's not hard to understand why Imagine has such appeal as it makes some of these pleas. Imagine there's no countries, nothing to kill or die for. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine no possessions, no need for greed. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. I mean, who wouldn't love that song? Everybody loves the optimism of imagine. And everybody's willing to put up a little bit with the hypocrisy of the fact that it was written by a rich rock star living in the most developed country in the world. We love the optimism of Imagine, but what troubles me most about the song is that John Lennon was clear that this world peace could and should take place apart from God. He also writes in the song, Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. 
No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine there's no countries. It's hard to do. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion too. I'm not denying that I don't like the song. Because I like a lot of Beatles music. It's, this, it's a great music. But the song defies everything that the New Testament professes that global peace, whatever global peace will occur, only occurs through the person of Jesus Christ. Again, he himself is our peace. John Lennon actually believed that world peace would occur with the ending of all religion. Pluralists today believe that world peace will occur with the blending of all religion, not he and he alone being our, our peace. So the starting place for all peace is that men would meet, would meet God. Gave you a little definition of peace last week. Let's do another one this week. Again, nothing, it's not really a right or wrong. It's more of a right or left definition of peace. I could probably be a, a million of them. Peace. A calm that is not haunted by yesterday, does not dread today, and does not fear tomorrow. A calm that is energized by the beauty of God's wisdom, His power, His holiness, and His, His mercy. This is the peace that God wants you to have. So today, everybody in here, you're either filled, your life is filled with peace, or your life is filled with hostility. That's the options in Ephesians 2.14. You either have peace or you are experiencing hostility, one or the other. The word hostility, or is sometimes translated enmity, is the barrier that existed between God and man. And so what we want to do to look at now is how did, God, how did God remove the hostility that divided us from Him? Verse 15, let's just read the whole thing. Verse, For He Himself is our peace, who's made the two groups one, destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by, this is how He did it, by setting aside in His flesh... The law with its commandments and regulations. So that word setting aside in verse 15, setting aside in his flesh, comes from katageo, which means to make something obsolete, to make it inoperative, to decommission it, to abolish it so that it's no longer useful. This is what Jesus Christ did in two ways. You say, why did Jesus Christ come this is how he abolished, this is the portion, or this is the manner in which you should think Jesus abolished the, how did Jesus abolish God's laws? This is how he, this is what it's talking about. Jesus abolished, it's important if you're going to grasp verse 15. Jesus abolished both the regulations of the ceremonial law, no more ceremonies, or the kind that were done. And he abolished the condemnation 
of the moral law. Jesus didn't abolish the moral law. He abolished the condemnation of the moral law. Let's say it like this. Jesus abolished the condemnation of the moral law because sins had been forgiven through his suffering. No more condemnation. Our sins have been paid for. That's how he abolished condemnation of the moral law. Then he abolished the use of the ceremonial law because they were no longer needed to point to his coming because he had definitely arrived. So the purpose of the ceremonies, all the purposes of the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament were to do two things. They were to declare and point to. One is they were to declare to man, you're separated from God and you can't do anything to fix it. You can bring all these animal sacrifices, you're still going to know you're separated. So all the ceremonies reminded us we're separated from God and they pointed to one who was coming to end that separation. That's what the ceremonies were for. Remind us we're separated, point to one who was going to end the separation. So God made it clear in a very spectacular way there was no need for any more ceremonies after the coming of Christ. When Jesus hung on the cross and when he died, the Bible says something magnificent and extravagant happened inside the temple where all the ceremonies took place. There was a curtain that divided the most holy place from all the other compartments of the temple and look what happened. Matthew 27, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, from God, heaven to earth, God to man. Curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. Why all this commotion? Because this was the first time in history that God looked down and saw a sacrifice that finally ended all the separation between God and his created people. And so this is the applause of heaven. All the rock splitting and the curtain tearing. And it was a declaration of God from this day on. No more ceremonies are needed for the one who has been promised to bring you to me, has brought you to me. Now let's go back to verse 14. Read it again. He himself is our peace, who's made the two groups one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law. I hope you understand that a little bit better now with its commands and regulation. So here is the problem in the book of Ephesians had some Jewish Christians who still loved the ceremonies. So you have Gentiles, you have Jewish Christians still clinging on to ceremonies that God said, nope, don't need them. Then you have Gentiles coming in absolutely clueless what a ceremony is. They had really no respect for the ceremonies. So you had Jews loving ceremonies they shouldn't love, And Gentiles having no ability to appreciate anything about the ceremonies. And there was a clash. And oddly enough, that is what was splitting the early church. 
And so God told the Jews, as he tells every Christian in every church, you let go of everything that you can that separates you from somebody else coming inside this church. That's what he said. Let go of everything that is a hindrance. Everything you can, everything that honors God that you can let go of. Let go so nothing will separate us from each other. So here's, the, here's God's thinking. If God is willing to make the big sacrifice, split the temple, you know, Send Christ, split the temple curtain. If God is willing to make the big sacrifice so that separation between his people doesn't occur, you and I are obligated to make the smaller sacrifices. In other words, God has every reason to expect that there's no black and no white, no Asian, no Anglo could ever say, God is asking too much of me to come together. If he ended all separation with the big sacrifice, we can end separation with much smaller sacrifices. Now, in Paul's day, the temple, uh, which was not built by Jews, it had been under Nehemiah, but it had been rebuilt like 4th century, I mean, uh, 4 BC, by Herod the Great. And it was the glory of Jerusalem. Massive stones overlaid with gold. And if there's one thing that Herod's temple screamed, it was separation. If you went inside Herod's temple, you would find a lot of different compartments. There was an innermost court called the court of priests. Only preacher types could hang out there. Then there was the court of Israel where if you were male, you could hang out there. Then there was the court of women, speaks for itself. And then you would descend five steps and be met with this massive wall. I'll tell you what the wall said in a moment. And past the wall, 14 more steps descending, and you would finally arrive at the court of Gentiles, us. Separation, separation, separation is all that Herod's temple screamed. And on that wall... When you went down the five steps before you went down the 14 steps was uh, an inscription. And if you go to Istanbul, Turkey, you can see it in a museum today. The temple inscription said, any, just one second, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure, anyone who's caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So this was like trespassers will be prosecuted on steroids. You cross this line, you're not going to be prosecuted, you are going to be killed. And Jesus hated this. He couldn't do anything about the, the temple that Herod built. But he could do something about the way that Gentiles were being treated inside that temple. So they didn't have much of a space anywhere to come inside the temple. They hardly could get in there because of all this descending steps. They hardly get in. 
But what the Jews had done in Jesus' day is the little space that was reserved for the Gentiles, they had filled it up with animals that were going to be sold for the Jewish religious sacrifices. So there was not even a place anymore for Gentiles to even come and possibly hear the hope of God. And this was Jesus' response to those who had done that to the court of Gentiles. Mark eleven seventeen. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for who? Everyone. All nations. But you, buyers and sellers of animals, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when they, when those chief priests found out that Jesus was serious about reaching Gentiles, non-Jews, look what they said. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. Not because he was claiming anything about being God, but because he's saying, you need to let those Gentiles in. And they hated him so much, they were going to kill Christ, who was trying to bring them together. Ephesians 2. Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new man. This is the purpose of the church. You'll never read any book of the New Testament that tells you about the purpose of the church like Ephesians. That's why I love it and why I'm hanging on here a, a few weeks. His purpose, those are huge words. God's purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So in, in essence, Jesus Christ came to establish a new race, Christians. That race would be composed of Jews and Gentiles, Asians and Anglos, light-skinned and dark-skinned, but it's a new race where everybody is simply called brother or sister. No titles that lift you up, no titles that put you down. No barriers, no categories. The church excludes no one who comes to Christ, nor do we respect one more than the other of those of us who are in Christ. All of us have a racial identity. All of us have an ethnic identity. All of us have a national identity. All of us have a family identity. All of us have a socioeconomic identity. But when you come in this building, you know what your identity is? I am a Christian. I'm not Chinese, not American, not black, I'm not white. I'm a Christian. That's the only identity you have in the church. I'm a Christian. And I will say this, if it makes you happier to say, I'm an American more than I am a Christian, I doubt you're a Christian. There is no greater identity in the world than to be blood-bought. I am a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. So when God forgives us of sin and brings us into his church, he doesn't transfer, transform Gentiles into Jews. He doesn't transfer Cambodians into Americans, blacks into whites. He simply transforms us all into Christians. And that's why he shed his blood on a cross 
to make one out of two. And let me tell you something. When prejudice, racism, bigotry occur in a nation, it's tragic. But when that occurs in a church, it's blasphemous. He died, shed his blood to make us one. And again, this great miracle of unity occurs only through the cross to reconcile both of them through cross. And again, this is why I have such a problem with John Lennon's song. He says, need to end religion. And three times in verses 14, 15, and 16, three times, the New Testament unabashedly says, this reconciliation, Anglo to Asian, black to white, rich to poor, occurs through his blood, verse 13, through his torn flesh, verse 14, where did all this tearing and bleeding occur? At the cross, verse 16. Friendship with God is only made possible because of the cross. So what I want to do for a second is to look at this word, reconcile. It's a key word here, key word in Colossians, key word in Romans. There you have a definition, simple, but I like it. What does it mean to be reconciled? Where you go from hostility to friendship. So before you can be friends, non-hostile friends with, I told you the other day that the cross has a, a vertical component and a horizontal component. So before you can be friends with each other, you have to be friends with God. And that is where the book of Colossians does come in handy. Helps us understand reconciliation in terms of friendship. Colossians 1, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but, but now he has reconciled you. So you can see in that verse the opposite of having an, in, uh, an enemy is having a friend. You know the greatest thing about the cross? The greatest thing about the cross is not only did Jesus Christ die on the cross to to forgive us for dishonoring God. Jesus, that's number one, Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of dishonoring God. But he died on the cross to give us a desire to honor God. That's the friendship part. Not only did he die to take away our guilt for our offensive actions, he died to put his spirit in us that we would desire for God to be our friend and our, our father. So let's look again how reconciliation looks on the horizontal. Again, verse 15 and 16. To make one out of the two. To reconcile. Reconcile. They would be friends, both of them to God. So how does the cross reconcile us to each other? How does that reconciliation? Two ways. It slays our pride and it slays our selfishness. This is how the cross reconciles horizontally. How does it slay our pride? Well, I said this last week, but it was so important. I want to say it again. According to God's measuring tape, that person over there that you call they, which probably means you're racist, 
that person, they are no more sinful than you are. And according to God's scales, you are no more deserving than they are. So they're no more sinful and you're no more deserving. For you not to go to hell, Jesus had to shed his blood. For them not to go to hell, Jesus had to shed his blood. The cross is the equalizer and slays our pride. Who could boast? Second, the cross slays our, our selfishness. You know what sin is when you just get down to the root of it? Sin is basically selfishness. I'm just going to live for me. I don't care who I hurt. I don't care the God I offend. I'm just going to live for me. I don't care what shame I bring, what pain I experience or cause. I am going to live for me. I'm going to be selfish. And the cross slays selfishness because you are indwelled by one who laid down himself for yourself. And that's why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I laid down myself. I have been crucified with Christ. And look at that. I laid down myself. Myself is dead. And I no longer live. But now Christ lives in me. So the power of the cross slays selfishness by putting to death our idolatry of self, our love of self, our allegiance to self. And this happens at the cross. I read a story this week about a group of soldiers in the war. They lost a comrade and they went to a Catholic church and asked the priest, could they bury, could they bury their fallen soldier in his cemetery? He said, this is a Catholic cemetery. Your friend's not Catholic. He can't be buried here. So they went outside the church cemetery, outside the fence, and they buried the fallen soldier there. A troop of soldiers came back. That same troop came back a month later by that church, and they could not find their friend's grave. And they went inside and asked the priest, could you help us find our friend where we buried him? This is what the priest responded. The first week after you buried your friend, I grieved for what I forced you to do. The second week after you buried your friend, I moved the fence. This is what the book of Ephesians is all about. We move Whatever fences are necessary, whatever fences are allowed in Scripture, move into somebody else's life that's new, different. We move the fence, we move into their life, and we also take down our fence so they can move into our life. We move fences to reach people. It's what the book of Ephesians, the New Testament, is all about. About moving fences are uncomfortable. It's hard to move from where you are now, isn't it? But Jesus reaches out to those who are most unlike him that they would be near him. 
Jesus reaches out to those who are most unlike him, that they would be near him. And he calls us to do the same. So I want to invite you this week, and as Dan said the other day, for the next generations this church is here, to be moving fences into other people's communities, their cities, their nations, and inviting them into your life. And it's going to be messy. It's going to be messy. This week, when I came up with the idea to bring some subliminal advertising to you, I don't know if you know, we're having an 845 service beginning <laughs> next week. I called a printer and said, I, I called him like on Thursday. I said, can you get me a shirt by today? Uh, I, said, I, really, I really need the shirt. And... Uh, so his first question was, it's image printing up on California, and I'm going to give them a shout-out because they were so nice to me. And he said, how many colors do you want? Up? How many colors are involved in the shirt? I said, about 90. Then I said, I'm just kidding. I said, I just want white letters on any shirt you've got. So he said, I can do that, not with the, our fancy kind of printing, but I can do it with uh, sort of vinyl lettering. And, but when I went up to get it, uh, he and his wife were in the store. They were so nice to me. He said, let me tell you why I told you I couldn't do something if it involved multiple colors. He invited me to the back. So this is what it takes. Don't you love it when you know what somebody else's business is? Like, you appreciate what they do. This is the mess it takes for people in the printing business to produce beautiful work. So for God to bring all the colors together in one church, it's going to be messy. But I want to remind you, the cross was messy too. Let's pray. Father, you came into our mess. Jesus, you got so messy. A lot of people didn't like you, didn't understand you, betrayed you, deserted you, didn't appreciate you. You didn't give up. You came into our mess. And you let the soldiers whip you into a mess. And hang you on a cross where you were a mess. Because you were committed to coming into our mess. And we love you for that. We cherish you for that. And we do believe and confess you are the only person who can solve the mess of the world. We worship you, Lord Jesus Christ. And now we ask, oh God, for black and white Anglo and Asian, rich and poor, up and out, down and out. We beg you, God. We plead with you, God. I mean, we are crying out to you, God.
Could we see the miracle for which Christ died? The blending together of the redeemed in one church. Oh God, would you mix the colors? Mix the hearts. Mix the sorrows. Mix the struggles. And mix the grace that we've all experienced. That we may, as one man, Christian, shout out our love for our God and Savior. For our neighborhood around us. Thank you. We haven't met all of them yet. Haven't met many of them yet. But we pray for them. We love them. For people who come by this church. Afraid. Take away their fear. Lord, when you send us overseas. To those who are preciously different. Different language, different culture, different nation. Father, we pray they would become one with us in Christ. Make us one. Draw the nations to Jesus. And let us be a part of it. In his name I pray. Amen.